today's reading is taken from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We start our reading from verses 18b to 26. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ, Jesus, will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Marco, thank you very much. Well, I think regulars know that next Sunday morning we have uh, our members uh, well, next Sunday, our members' meeting. We were going to have it on Sunday evening online, but um, if you don't mind, I'm going to repent of that and uh, suggest that we actually do it immediately after the service. And the reason for that is that we're welcoming five new people into membership and four new people into associate membership. And it seems rather dull and dreary to do that over Zoom or whatever it is when we could do it in person. So. Um, we'll make arrangements so that the service is perhaps a little shorter. We'll grab our coffee immediately afterwards and then get on with the business of the meeting. Good. Well, please uh, have our Bibles open, as always, at the passage Marco has read for us. And uh, I'm going to ask the Lord to open his word to our hearts. Well, our loving Heavenly Father, it is our joy to worship you together and to bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know us through and through, and that your word is able first to find us then to speak to us, and then to transform us. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, this passage will come alive to our hearts and minds this morning. And so we say together, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what then is your ambition? What is the one thing that you would say that you are living for more than anything else? 
Uh, and as I say that, we are, of course, thinking of realistic ambitions. So uh, it's not like the ambition of the female pop star Madonna, who said, well, I won't be happy until I'm as famous as God. Uh, it would seem that nobody told her that's never going to happen. But my friend, what about you? What is your ambition? What do you want more than anything else? Uh, is it to get a secure, well-paid job? Um, or perhaps it's to find your life partner? Or perhaps it's that your children will find a life partner? Maybe with Tokyo 2020 fresh in our minds, for some people it might be to compete in the 2024 Olympics uh, in Paris. Uh, maybe you haven't even thought about it. And if that's you, um, I suppose one way to get started might be to ask yourself, what one thing would I be willing to suffer for? So, for example, if you want to compete in the Olympics in Paris in 2024, you've got to be willing to suffer the early morning training, uh, the pain, the sweat, and all of the restrictions of a disciplined regime. And you can see, of course, that in that example, realizing the ambition inevitably involves a certain amount of suffering. Without the suffering, the ambition is simply never going to happen. Now, in our passage this morning, the apostle reveals his ambition. And it's not wishful thinking because he explains why he's absolutely confident it's going to be fulfilled. And he spells out for us the conviction that motivates him to keep going. So notice the little structure in the passage. We've got Paul's confidence there in verse 19. Then we've got Paul's ambition in verse 20. We'll spend most of our time on that. And then we have Paul's conviction in verses 21 to 26. So confidence, ambition, conviction. Now last week we saw that Paul's focus was very much on the present uh, and his joy in seeing the gospel of the Lord Jesus go out by whatever means. And we ended on the first half of verse 18 where Paul says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, I'm sure you can see that that is joy in the present. And you and I can identify with that, can't we? Because it's what we feel when someone you and I know responds to the gospel. There we are, we've been praying for them for ages. Uh, nothing terribly much seems to be happening. Uh, as far as they're concerned, Jesus is, well, mildly interesting, but not really very much more than that. But then suddenly, one day, out of the blue, God opens their eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, and the fireworks go off. Uh, they become a new person. The change is unmistakable. Everybody can see it. And we rejoice. 
But this week, Paul's focus shifts to the future and his passion to to keep on pressing on for the cause of Christ. So notice, as our passage begins, verse 18b, he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Now, obviously, he's talking about the future. But the question is, how on earth can he be sure of that future joy? I mean, think of his situation. He's locked up in prison. There's enormous opposition to his ministry and to the cause of Christ. How can he possibly say, I will continue to rejoice? Well, that brings us to our first point, Paul's confidence which, as I said earlier, is verse 19. Look down with me to the end of verse 18 and verse 19. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, although the deliverance that Paul's talking about there could possibly be his eventual release from prison, the context actually suggests that's very unlikely. The the word translated deliverance appears on two other occasions in the letter, and on both occasions, it's translated by the English word salvation. So I think the idea is that regardless of whether Paul gets a bad verdict in Caesar's courtroom or not, Paul is actually working towards the verdict in the courtroom that ultimately matters, the courtroom of heaven, where the judge of all mankind looks down and sees Paul and says, well, you may be in prison. You may have been beaten up by the Romans. You might have been marginalized by your rivals, but well done, Paul, my good and faithful servant. That, I think, is the goal that he's working towards. That's the future he's expecting, and it gives him great joy. Now, here's the point. The point I want you to notice is that Paul's confidence that this is going to happen is grounded in two things. It's grounded, first of all, in the prayers of his friends, and it's also grounded in the help of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to notice that verse 19 is one of those marvelous verses in Holy Scripture where we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility working together. Uh, And it's our confidence, you see, in that combination that is absolutely vital for our stability as Christian people, especially in times of hardship and suffering. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, working together. It's actually a combination we find in a number of other places in the letter. We'll just look at one of them. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. At the end of verse 12, Paul says to the Philippians that they are to continue working out their salvation with fear and trembling. So that is human responsibility. The Philippians have got to do it. No one's going to do it for them. 
But then in verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So clearly that's God's sovereignty, isn't it? And we have that exact same combination in verse 19 of our passage this morning. I think you and I are sometimes tempted to think, well, it's got to be either one or the other. It's either God's sovereignty or it's human responsibility. But that's not how it works. In chapter 1, verse 19, the Philippians were praying for Paul's deliverance. They were praying that Paul would endure in his difficult situation. That was their responsibility. But at the same time, God the Holy Spirit was giving Paul the help that he needed to persevere. And it was a gift of God's sovereign grace. So was Paul's confidence in their prayers or in the Spirit's help? The answer is yes. (laughs) It was both. It's a hard idea for us to get hold of, but it's something that the Lord wants us to embrace so that you and I have the confidence that we need to stand firm for Christ in tough times. And I think it means, doesn't it, that we have to have our minds recalibrated and get used to the idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility working together, because that's where Paul's confidence came from. So, let's apply it. Let's bring this a bit closer to home. Last Sunday morning, uh, and actually in our Bible studies this week, we were talking, weren't we, about the importance of getting the gospel out. And uh, I know that most of you really want to do that. But what confidence do you have that you will stick at it? What confidence do you have that you won't be put off by the scoffing of your friends? and uh, their hostility to Jesus Christ and his cause. Is your confidence in your own resolve? Is your confidence in your inbuilt enthusiasm to press on under all circumstances? Is it perhaps in your never-say-die attitude? Paul would say that his confidence to endure in the most discouraging circumstances was in knowing that the Philippians were praying and that the Holy Spirit would help. So you see, dear friends, if we're going to be like the Apostle Paul, then we are going to be looking to our gospel partners. Not the Philippians, of course, but our gospel partners here at St. Barnabas. We're going to want them to pray for us and we're going to be looking to God the Holy Spirit to help us. So why not make a resolution right now this morning to put this into practice so that when you are planning to have a a gospel conversation with someone, maybe a friend or a family member over coffee, maybe you're going to invite them to church, why not send a WhatsApp through to your home group? and ask them to pray for you. Give them specific points to pray for. But at the same time, keep looking to the Sovereign Lord. Cry out for help. Realize that without him, you can actually do very little. And as we think about 
life beyond lockdown, let's renew our commitment to praying for our unsaved family members and friends, people who don't yet know the Lord. And let's follow Paul's example here so that together we become really effective gospel partners. So that's Paul's confidence for the future. He knows that his gospel partners are going to be praying for him, and he knows that the Holy Spirit is going to help him. That's the first thing. Now, secondly, notice in the text Paul's ambition in verse 20. So what was Paul's ultimate goal? Uh, What was he trying to get out of life? What was the big thing that he wanted more than anything else? Well, look with me at verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. Now, here it comes. So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul's ambition that he's absolutely confident is going to happen because of all the support he's getting is that now as always Christ will be exalted in his body whether by life or by death. It's so unlike the ambitions that tend to occupy our waking thoughts most of the time, isn't it? What really stands out for me here is that Paul almost seems not to care about himself. The thing that matters most of all to him, the thing that he's willing to suffer for, is that Christ will be exalted. For Paul, life is all about making Jesus look great. It's life and death for him. He wants to make Jesus look really, really great. Great. Now think about this with me. Because, of course, Jesus is great. He really is. He's magnificent. He's the greatest person ever. But to the Roman guards, to the prisoners chained up with Paul, to the Roman emperor, to your unbelieving family and friends, You know perfectly well that to them, Jesus is not actually the greatest person ever. In fact, they rarely think about him at all. Now, we know that a day is coming when the Lord Jesus is going to be revealed to everybody as the mighty king that he is. And we're going to get a foretaste of that in chapter 2, verse 11 and following in a couple of weeks' time. But until then, for most people... Jesus is really not much more than just another tiny star in the sky alongside other famous people in history. Some people are interested in him. Many more couldn't care less. Now, of course, if you could see Jesus, you would realize immediately in a heartbeat just how magnificent he is. And Paul is saying that His ambition in life, his goal, is to telescope Jesus. 
to reveal the marginalized, forgotten Jesus of popular imagination as the magnificent God and King that he really is. That's his ambition, to bring Jesus into view clearly for other people. Now, how does that happen? Well, he says it happens in my body, either by life or by death. Now, how does that work? Well, I think it works like this. When Paul was writing, it was about 30 years after the Lord Jesus died and rose and went home to be with his father. And in that period when he was writing, and also today, nobody can see Jesus in his resurrection glory. He's on the throne of heaven. They can't see him. But they could see Paul. Fellow prisoners could see Paul in chains alongside them. Soldiers could see Paul as they were giving him yet another beating. The whole palace guard can see him in a sense as the word gets around about who this amazing inmate really is. The Christian believers outside the prison can see Paul as they hear about his gospeling. And as they see Paul, the physical, 3D, living and breathing Paul, they're getting a glimpse of Jesus himself. Because you see, when you see somebody getting a beating, or taking abuse from their enemies, but taking it on the chin anyway, or you hear about their joy in spite of their desperate circumstances, And when they say that what motivates them is the honor of Jesus Christ, well, you're bound to think, aren't you? Well, Jesus must be really rather special. He's causing Paul to rejoice while he's in chains. And his example is encouraging lots of other people to speak openly and courageously about Jesus. There must be more to Jesus than I thought. Maybe an illustration will help us. Suppose you're single and uh, you start going out with somebody, the more you go out with them and get to know them, the more you're finding yourself attracted to them, and uh, eventually you fall in love with them. And the more you fall in love with them, the more that you're willing to make sacrifices for them, And the more you quite willingly give up some of the freedoms you used to enjoy before you met them. Maybe, ultimately, you choose to give up the freedom of singleness altogether and you decide to get married. Now let's suppose in that illustration that before the wedding you go home to your family. Immediately they see the new you. They see that you've changed. They see that you've got new priorities and they hear about the sacrifices that you've been making and they're full of joy at the new love that you've found in your life. And so inevitably your family will say, well, we need to meet this extraordinary person who's had such a dramatic influence upon you. Now, I know it's not a perfect illustration, but I'm sure you get the point. It's observing you that causes them to see the greatness of the other person. 
And so, too, it was Paul's greatest ambition that observing Paul would teach people about the greatness of Christ. They couldn't see Jesus in the flesh, but his ambition was to telescope Jesus, uh, to bring Jesus near to people who otherwise would never think about him at all. And it was such a, a burning ambition for him that he didn't much mind whether he did it by his life or by his death. He wanted to telescope Jesus by the way that he lived in prison and, if necessary, by the way that he died in prison. So, as he took literally yet another blow, he wanted Christ to be exalted as he anticipated being summoned before Caesar at any moment, not knowing whether he would live or die, he wanted Christ to be exalted as he tried to speak, as he tried to live lovingly and kindly. Even as he felt in his heart the sentence of death, he wanted Christ to be exalted. For that, of course, he needed courage, he needed gospel guts, he needed the Philippians' prayers, and he needed the help of the Spirit. Now, friends, can I ask, what I wonder would our life look like if we had an ambition remotely like that? What would it look like for you to have that goal in your life, to exalt Christ in your body. I imagine at the very least it would look like trying to name drop Jesus wherever we possibly can. It might mean that when we gather for Bible study or home group or whatever it is, we might pray Psalm 115 verse 1. I, I'm to my shame, had not paid enough attention to this verse. It really is a marvelous verse. Psalm 115, verse 1 says this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. So when someone says, thank you so much for the Bible study, thank you so much for that one-to-one, -one. thank you for the cup of coffee and getting alongside me, we can reply, well, Thank you, but not to me, but to Jesus be the glory. That's one way, I think, that we can deflect glory and honor away from ourselves and onto the person of Jesus. I mean, after all, he's given us life and breath and everything and gifts and a calling. And the very least that we can do when others see that is to give the glory back to him. Isn't that right? And I wonder if it might also involve showing perhaps a little bit more of our motivation. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I've no doubt that some of us are trying to befriend our neighbours or the people that we bump into during the week socially. And I've no doubt that a lot of the time we're doing that specifically in order to serve the Lord. And we know that the Lord has said, well, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So we're working really hard at forgiving people. And at work, we're 
working with all our heart as to the Lord and not for men. And we want to love our neighbours ourselves because Jesus said we should. But wouldn't it be great if as well as actually doing the right thing, we sometimes explain why we're doing it? So when somebody says how much they appreciate our friendship, uh, or that they value our faithfulness, or the way that we remember other people's birthdays, but perhaps we could say something like this, well, it's because of Jesus that I am like I am. Uh, it's because of Jesus that I work as hard as I do. It's because of Jesus that I want to forgive others even when they've hurt me. And it's because of Jesus that I want to be a faithful friend. Wouldn't that be a good way to telescope Jesus? To magnify him for the benefit of our friends? To say, he's the reason I do these things. It's not because I'm naturally a terrific person. It's because I actually want to live out what Jesus has done for me. So how can I be anything other than as kind and generous and patient as possible? Because that's what I've received from his hand. And you see, friends, as that happens in our lives, so Paul's ambition comes closer to our own daily reality because we are exalting Christ in our body. Now, of course, the great question is, where on earth are we going to find the courage to do that? I mean, it's pretty huge to live like that. None of us are going to do it naturally. So how does someone like me, how does somebody, someone like you, become a bit more like the Apostle Paul? There's got to be a secret. There's got to be a key. And if only we knew what it was, maybe actually these things could happen in our lives. And that brings us to verse 21 and our last heading this morning, which is Paul's conviction. You see, if we were to ask Paul, how is it that he'll keep speaking about Jesus when he gets beaten up for it? Or how is it that he'll keep rejoicing when he's uh, marginalized and people stab him in the back? Or why is it that he wants to telescope Jesus at every opportunity possible? What would Paul say? Well, his answer is, of course, the famous words in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I guess some of us are into highlighting verses in our Bibles, and if we are, this may well be one of the verses that you've highlighted and memorized, and it's a terrific verse to do it with. Now let me tell you, what is so very striking about this verse is that it's describing a win-win situation. To live is Christ, that's a win. To die is gain, that's also a win. And it's worth thinking about because, you see, that's not how it is for most people today, is it? Many people today are living by what we might call a win-lose philosophy. Because for them, to live is pleasure, to die 
is to lose everything. Or to live is adventure. To die is the end of the road. Or to live is money. To die is to leave it all behind. Or to live is entertainment, or to live for the weekend, or to live for the moment. And to die is a life cut short. For many people, I guess, to live is religion. And to die is, actually we're not really quite sure um, if I've done enough and my good outweighs my bad, well, maybe I'll be okay. Many more people would say to live is relationships, to live for a life partner or to live for a child. And to die is shattered dreams and aching loss. So can you see that most people, I think, actually have a win-lose philosophy of life? But let's get it clear in our minds this morning that for Christians, it is win-win. The problem for many of us who call ourselves Christians is that practically we have reversed Paul's words. So we think to ourselves that to live is gain and to die is Christ. I think that's the way many Christians function. So in practice, we live our lives trying to gain all kinds of things. Friendships, family, security, reputation. And to die is Christ. In other words, Christ only becomes the focus when we're staring death in the face. And for that reason, I think many Christians would say the best thing about being a Christian is that when you die, you get Christ, which is really only another way of saying that during our lifetime, we're not much different to anybody else. It's all about gaining different things and experiences. Oh, and uh, yes, when we die, there's Christ. So Christ in that situation becomes rather like breakdown insurance. So there we are, we're living our lives, driving comfortably along the road of life, and it's only when we break down or hit a massive crisis of some kind that we pick up the phone to Christ and ask for some divine roadside assistance. But for Paul, it's the opposite. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. What does he mean? We don't have to guess because he actually tells us in the verses that follow. First, what does life mean for him? Well, in verse 22, let's look down at verse 22. It's to do with fruitful labor. And then in verse 25, it will mean remaining with the Philippians for their spiritual progress and joy. Now think about that, because you see, it means that when Paul says for him to live is Christ, it seems that he's saying to live is to serve Christ in two ways. In fruitful labor, he might be thinking there perhaps about a fruitful evangelistic ministry, winning new people for Jesus, and it's remaining with the Philippians for their spiritual 
progress. And there I think he's probably thinking about the discipleship programs he wants to do with them. And that seems to be what he means by the phrase, to live is Christ. For Paul, to live is to serve Christ. On the other hand, to die is gain. What does Paul mean by that? Well, verse 23 tells us. It means departing and being with Christ. Which Paul says is better by far. That's quite a statement, isn't it? So, so to die means to be with Christ. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says that to be absent from the body in death is to be present with the Lord. For your notes, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. So to die means to be removed from this world of endless hostility to the cause of Christ, both outside and, dare I say, inside the church, and to be free from sin and weakness and death. But best of all, best of all, it means being with Jesus forever. Over the centuries, Christians have debated endlessly what happens between our physical death and the return of the Lord Jesus. I think Philippians 1.23 is a key text in favor of the argument that when a Christian dies, their body goes into the ground, but their soul immediately goes into the presence of Jesus. And then at the second coming, when God wraps up all of human history, our soul and our body are reunited. The dead are raised, and all those who've put their trust in Christ populate the new heavens and the new earth. We could say an awful lot more about that. But this morning, the important thing for us to grasp is that for Christians, the future is win-win. To live is to serve Christ, to die is to be with Christ. Paul is actually genuinely undecided about which one to choose. Um, to live for him means serving Christ and the very real joy that comes from that. To die means the great joy of being with him. Paul says it's almost impossible for him to choose between the two. So if you are uh, a jihadist and you hate Christians, what on earth are you going to do with the Apostle Paul? I mean, do you kill him? Uh, Paul would say, well, come and get me. Because if I die, it's game. So clearly that doesn't work. So you, there you are as a jihadist scratching your head. Do you say, well, okay, we better set him free. But then, of course, he carries on with his gospel work, and there's tremendous joy in that. So if you want to crush Paul and discourage him and snuff him out, what on earth do you do? He says, if you really push me for an answer... I would actually prefer to die and be with Christ my Savior. But for the sake of you Philippians, I guess it's better for me to remain and do gospel work with you. I suppose for him it's a, it's a bit like uh, placing a 10,000 rand bet on a coin toss with a double-sided coin. 
Because whichever way the coin falls, Paul wins. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now that's got enormous implications for us this morning. Because you see, we're all on the road that ends in death. A lot of people try not to think about that. They try to deny it, but it's the reality. We can't avoid it. And during the last year, surely, we've all been reminded, haven't we, that life is really very, very short indeed. So let me leave you with this question. What is your life for? Can you say that for you, To live is to serve Christ, and to die is to be with Christ your Savior. Let me end with this. Mehdi Dibaj was an Iranian who converted from Islam to Christ. In 1984, he was imprisoned on a charge of apostasy. And as I'm sure you know, under Islamic law, the penalty for apostatizing from Islam is death. But he was left in prison for 10 years before his case came to trial. When he eventually appeared in court, he was allowed to submit a written defense. And in it, he wrote these astonishing words, which I hope might appear on the screen. He wrote this, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel. Quite a thing to say in an Iranian court, isn't it? I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I'm not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Following uh, intense pressure from Western governments, um, Mehdi Dibaj was released from prison, but tragically seven months later, he was found dead in a park in Tehran under very suspicious circumstances indeed. But I share it with you because, like Paul, he was utterly confident of his vindication in the courtroom of heaven. Like Paul, his ambition was to exalt Christ at every opportunity. And like Paul, his firm conviction was to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as you and I reflect on this passage in this coming week, the question is, are these things also true for you and for me? Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, in the pandemic, you have been reminding us that our lives here on earth really are very short indeed. Help us not to waste our lives on secondary things,
but rather to make them count by exalting Christ in everything. And because none of us will do that naturally, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And we do pray that you would grant to us the conviction he lived by, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake.